Before we go into the passage this morning, I would like to do a quick little conversation here with Job Hammond, who is our pastoral director of youth uh, this past year, and he's been a part of EBF for several years. In addition to leading our youth, he and his wife, uh, Bethany, also a part of a ministry called Rain Ministries, and lead trips uh, for students around the world to share the gospel. In particular, in this past few years, they've been leading trips to Nepal. And you may know that uh, Nepal had a tragic earthquake not too long ago, and Job was actually there last week. I wanted to bring him up and kind of give us that. Just tell us what's going on in Nepal. What did you see? Uh, tell us a little bit about um, your work there. Yeah, well, I, uh, I headed over there with my ministry director after the earthquake happened to find out. Um, if the team that we already had planned to go there this summer was still going to work, if it was still possible to take students over there, and what our new ministry would look like. And what we found was uh, is that the damage in, in Nepal isn't necessarily everywhere, but where it is, it is really severe. And uh, whole villages where their houses are completely destroyed. It kind of looked like in movies when we watch, and they've, they've been in like war movies and they've been bombed out and just totally destroyed. That's kind of what it felt like being there. Just houses made of brick, just completely collapsed, totally in rubble and debris. And, uh, and the Nepali people just kind of tenting out, camping, displaced from their homes, sort of wondering and waiting what to do next and what's, what it's going to look like to move forward, still trying to grasp the magnitude of what, what's just happened, and, and, um, and also very nervous and anxious about the continuing aftershocks from the earthquake. So just trying to figure out what, what to do next. And, uh, and so what we also found, a lot of schools have been destroyed, a lot of churches have been destroyed. In fact, when the earthquake struck was when normally church services would be happening. So it would be like right now for us. And school wasn't in session, but church was. And, uh, and actually what we found, and we got some reports from certain churches had been, like congregations of 50, 60 people had been completely lost when their old buildings collapsed during the earthquake. Um, so just heartbreaking to find out. And, uh, and so we are still leading a team there this summer with students. And, uh, and some things, if you want to know how you can, uh, can help Nepal, I got a couple things for you. First, I figure I can carry about 1,000 pounds worth of supplies over there with me for the earthquake victims. So I'm going to put the word out this week about specific things that you might have laying around that you can donate um, to help people get back on their feet in Nepal. And so uh, and I'll, I'll let you know, I'll advertise on the city and however else they'll let me um, to communicate to you what, how you can give and donate to help out with that. And also, we decided we're going to put together a second team to Nepal specifically for people ages 17 and up to go and help specifically for three weeks with earthquake relief work there. Um, we're partnering with the local churches to, to get some relief out to some of the rural villages that still need help and, uh, and uh, help the Nepali people sort of clear out some of the rubble from their homes and start rebuilding their lives. Um, and so I, if you want to know how you can drop everything and just rush out there to Nepal and help out, uh, we have that opportunity for you. So let me know. Talk to me and I'll, uh, I'll uh, connect you with that opportunity as well. That's great, Joe. Would you mind praying for the Nepali people and for the churches over there during this time? I would love to. Uh, Father, when disaster strikes so far overseas, it's hard to really know how we can help and, uh, and what you would have us do to, to help out the Nepali people. I just pray that right now, as, as they are still in crisis, God, that, uh, that you would be a source of comfort to them, 
that uh, in a country that is filled with idolatry, um, the Lord, that this would be an opportunity to break that stronghold and to let you be glorified among these people and to, to be their source of hope and strength in this very difficult time. And I pray that we as the Christian church and the Christian community would gather around them and find ways to help them, that we would... Um, be willing to step out of the comfort of our own lives for this moment and to reach out to them and to see what they need and to see what we can do to, to help provide for that need. Lord, so I just pray that, that, uh, that you would use us, God, and that you would be glorified in Nepal um, and that the people who are hurting, uh, the people who need help, would find that in you and in your Christian church, Lord. So I just pray that, that you would give us a vision for how to make that happen. Near my prayer. Amen. Thanks a lot, Joe. Appreciate it. Some of you may have been praying about what you should do this summer. Here's an opportunity. Spend three weeks in Nepal serving for the glory of God. Seriously consider it. When I first became a Christian at 19, there was one overriding attribute of God that was a catalyst to draw me to him. Some of you will give your testimony of coming to faith in Jesus, and you will talk about the love and mercy of God. The love and mercy of God it obviously is a part of my testimony as well, as his, his love was shown in, in an unconditional way to me and draw me to himself. But that wasn't the one overriding attribute. Some of you may tell your Christian story and speak about God's grace, how we Go to heaven not by our good works, but by the grace of God shown us through Jesus Christ. And I could talk about his grace as well. But it wasn't that one overriding attribute that drew me to him. Some of you may even tell your Christian story and talk about God's wrath and and hell. And I have no problem with people converting because they're scared of God's wrath and God's hell aimed at them, and they take security in the cross and faith in Jesus. And the fear of God was definitely a part of my original story, but it wasn't that one overriding attribute that drew me to him. All of these attributes and so many more came into play in my conversion, but the one overriding attribute that was pressed down on me is this, the lordship of Jesus. If I was to become a Christian, I was no longer going to be in control of my life and Lord over my life. My life was now going to be in submission to the Lord Jesus and he was going to rule, he was going to reign, he was going to call the shots. The image that is often given, perhaps you've seen this before, is this picture of a heart, like my heart, okay? And on my heart is this throne, and before I became a Christian, I'm sitting on the throne, I'm ruling and reigning my life. Once I put my faith in Christ, I get kicked off the throne. Jesus is now sitting on the throne of my life, calling the shots, ruling and reigning. And the way that we enter the Christian life in submission to the Lordship of Jesus is the way that we continue on in the Christian life submitting to Jesus. If you claim to be a Christian, Jesus is now the King, He is the ruler, and He is the Lord of your life, and He has absolute sway 
and authority. And whatever he say, it goes. And what I want to spend some time talking about this morning is what does that look like ongoing? Now, if you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that look like as you progress through your Christian life? And we're going to look at this kind of in detail as best as we can from the book of 1 Samuel. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, and we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 18. Last week was an extremely long passage on Mother's Day as we covered the great Mother's Day passage of David and Goliath. It's 58 verses long. This week, it's warm. We've got to get out of here. We're kind of hot. The text is shorter. And in this text, we are going to see in 1 Samuel 18 that everybody loves David. King David, the up-and-coming anointed king. Saul, the current king, loves David. Jonathan, Saul's son, loves David. Michael, who's going to be David's future wife, she loves David. Saul's servants are impressed with David. Dancers and musicians sing praises of David. In fact, we are told in verse 16 that all Israel and Judah loved David. Now, of all these people who love David, there is one that started to become jealous, and he stopped loving David. Can you guess who that was? It was King Saul. And often our stories throughout the rest of 1 Samuel are going to be stories of how Saul is trying to kill David. For our purposes here today, we are going to see the contrast between Jonathan, Saul's son, and we're going to see him contrasted with King Saul. Jonathan's response to David is directly opposite of Saul. Jonathan receives David and basically says, crown him. And Saul envies David and basically says, kill him. Crown him, kill him. Now, I'm going to try to connect it with us today, and I want you to think about different responses to another king. And that's different responses to King Jesus. We can even think about the different responses to King Jesus in the Bible. As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the donkey on the last week of his life, remember what the crowd was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, right? Crown him, crown him, crown him. A few days later... There was a crowd that was shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. Scholars debate whether these two crowds are the same people, where at one part of the week they're saying crown him, and at a different part of the week they're saying crucify him. And I'm not here to get in that debate, but as we look at our world today, there are two different responses to Jesus. One is crown him, he is Lord, and the other is kill them. And I don't mean to be dramatic that everybody wants to kill Jesus, but it is ignoring of the lordship of Jesus. And even within our own hearts, who are Christians claiming to say crown him where he sits on the throne, there is still parts of us that wants to kick Jesus off the throne, make our own decisions, and run our own lives as little gods, as little lords. Get off Jesus. 
Now, before I jump into the text, I'm going to say something very important. Five years ago, chances are there is a person in here or two or three or ten who heard this message on the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you had a chance to submit to his Lordship over certain areas of your life and five years ago, you decided not to do it. And five years later, how's that going for you? How many of you wish that you would have heeded a certain call of submitting a certain area of your life over to Jesus five years ago, but for five years, you have been ignoring maybe one certain area of your life, and now five years later, it's gotten worse? Hey, you can whine and cry and gripe and complain about how you've blown it the last five years, but my brothers and sisters, today is a wake-up call. If you're in the same spot five years from now because you're ignoring the lordship of Jesus, I'm going to say something very unpastorally, and that is this. Don't come whining to me. You can if you want to, but don't do it. Because I'm giving you a wake-up call this morning to submit all areas of your life to the lordship of Jesus, leaving none out, and when you do, it is to your own peril. Crown him, kill him. Let's jump in. Let's start with the crown him. Let's start with Jonathan's response to David. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Much has been made of this friendship between David and Jonathan. And and just want to tell you, some modern perverted interpretations have attempted to hijack this friendship and turn it into a sexual relationship. And this text gives no hint of that as it comes in the context of many people loving David. And in fact, later in the chapter, David is loved by Saul's daughter, whom he marries. But most interpreters have it rightly where they focus on the friendship between Saul, I'm sorry, between Jonathan and David. But I'm going to branch out a bit to tell you that though the friendship is there, I'm kind of hesitant to say that's the main thing going on there. There is a friendship between David and Jonathan for sure, but the main thing going on here has significant political overtones. Stay with me, political overtones. Jonathan is supposed to be the next king. He's Saul's son. He has proven himself in victory. And he's been faithful in battle. But we already know that Saul will not have a dynasty because of his disobedience. Saul will be the first king and the last king in his line. I don't think Jonathan knows that yet, but it's as if God is stirring up Jonathan's heart to confer earthly recognition 
even before David was openly declared as king. Look at verse 4 again. It it shows Jonathan taking off his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and giving it to David. What's going on here? Is this like a friendship bracelets? It's like, I I have the necklace with half of the heart, and I'm going to give you half of the heart, and David and John have this great friend. That's not what's going on here. This This is a political move here, where basically what you have here is you have Jonathan saying, you're the king, not me. He's deferring. He is submitting to King David. And I think you could almost have uh, uh, Jonathan echoing the words of someone else in the Bible. You heard of that guy named John the Baptist? And I love the words that John the Baptist used speaking of Jesus in John 3.30. John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. If you are a Christian, you should see this progress in your Christian life where you are submitting yourself more and more and more to King Jesus. That he's pointing out areas of your life that need to change and you submit it to Christ. And as you progress through the Christian life, you want to exhibit more Christ-likeness, more crown him. Let me share this with you. It comes from the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul, he says that I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? Basically, Paul says, not I, but Christ. And I've read this past week something fancy, that C is a bent I. The concept that we want to live our lives on our throne, it's the I. But we want to see throughout our lives, our lives bending more and more. Where C becomes a bent I. Where my will starts to bend to the will of Christ. Where not I who live, but Christ lives in and through me. He is Lord over everything. And so when I'm on my throne with my I, I get kicked off and I get bent to the word of God. I get bent through suffering and I become more and more like Christ. I like that image. C is a bent I. Keep going. David is clearly God's man with God's blessing. Look at verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Wherever David went, he had success. Wherever he went out in battle, he had success. And now as Jonathan is bending himself to the will of David, he is... submitting to David. He's conferring on him earthly kingship. It's not as if he is aligning himself with a loser. He is aligning himself with the winning side. He doesn't know this yet, but his dad is going to be killed in battle. And he's connecting himself with the champion, with David. So it's not as if I tell you, hey, if you follow Jesus Christ, you are going to be a loser. When you submit your will to Jesus Christ, you're taking your heart and aligning itself with the champion, with the victor, no matter how messed up your life may get on this earth. As you are in Jesus Christ, submitting to his will, you are submitting yourself and aligning yourself with the winning side. If that is true, if Jesus has the best intentions for your life, 
to bring you the most amount of good and the most glory, why would you and why would I ever resist him? If we could all agree intellectually that God has our best in mind, why would we want to have our way, our rule, and our reign? This is something I want you to get. If you want to have the C-bent-eye thing going on where you're bending yourself more into Christ-likeness by His grace, by His Spirit, then you've got to do something that's, that's uh, uh, kind of a saying no to yourself, dying to yourself. Uh, let me explain it this way. My son likes Christian rap music big time. He's listening to it all the time. And he likes this one particular song uh, th- that he actually has on his T-shirt. He got this T-shirt, and the song is called, I Signed Up to Die. And, and the idea is as he followed Jesus, we're going to follow Jesus all the way to death. I, I signed up to die. And-, and I think that's a lordship statement. But as I thought about that statement, I rewrote the song. And as I rewrote the song, I'm actually going to create a new T-shirt. And it's going to go, here's my new song. It goes like this. I signed up to die daily. I'll just add it one word. I signed up to die daily. And, and, and here, here's why I'm going to say that. I seem to be more eager about dying for Jesus. And I don't make light of it. I mean, literally dying for Jesus. I seem to have a lot of talk around my family and even in the church that being a martyr seems to be something highly elevated in the Bible. So I seem to think in my head that, oh, yeah, I'd love to go overseas into a difficult part and share the gospel and die on a foreign field. Wouldn't that be great sharing the gospel and then being killed for sharing your faith? I think that in my head, right? If that is the case, then why am I so hesitant to share my faith in Evanston? (laughs) I'm scared what others may think of me. So mentally, I'm ready to go die for the gospel, right? But this dying daily and sharing the gospel here, are you kidding me? Someone may, may say something bad about me. I signed up to die daily. Here's something else that I like to think about. I like to think about, oh, you know, I really care about orphans and I want to go where there's so many orphans and there's sickness and I want to go and I want to take care of these orphans and if they're sick and I get sick, maybe I I may die. Wouldn't that be great? Dying, caring for orphans. Wait, I signed up to die. And yet, if you want me to change one of my own kid's diapers, oh man, I don't want to do that. You see how this works? C is a, a bent eye. The concept is I want to be more like Christ. There has to be not this, I sign up to die, I'm ready to die for Jesus, let's go wherever. No, daily, daily, daily. Crown him, crown him, crown him. If he's Lord, there is this lordship that is coming upon me every single day in the little stuff conforming me to his image. Crown him. But then there's this other response. This is the response of King Saul, and it's kill him. Look at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's the giant, 
the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Coming back from this battle, he killed the giant, right? And this is music that is directed at King Saul. Check it out. These women have tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's as if the song is saying, Saul has been successful in killing thousands, but David far surpasses in killing ten thousands. And I don't think it's meant as a diss to Saul, but Saul took it as a diss. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is the beginning of Saul's anger and jealousy aimed at David. Saul was the king, and the glory and the praise was supposed to go to him alone, but now it's being aimed at David, and he does not like it. One night, I had a very serious theological conversation with my five-year-old daughter. She asked me a question as I was putting her to bed. She asked me, am I the bestest person in the whole wide world? And like a good dad, I said, no. Jesus is. And she said, oh, man. And then she asked me a question. She said, Jesus and me are the bestest in the whole wide world. And like a good dad, I said, no, just Jesus. And she said, oh, man. She's a little mad. Now, here you have King Saul. He's not a little mad. He's a lot mad. And from here on out to the rest of the book, Saul is going to see David and say, kill him. Kill him. And as he starts to pursue David, he becomes a little crazy, as my kids say, a little cray-cray. Verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. God is involved in tormenting Saul here and stirring up his craziness through this harmful spirit. I, I, it's hard to explain this. Maybe you can think about Job having permission or Satan having permission to attack Job. It seems like a harmful, evil spirit is attacking Saul and stirring up his craziness. David is brought in with a little a bit of music therapy uh, to calm him down. It doesn't seem to be working so well as uh, Saul picks up a spear and he tries to pin David to the wall. Now, you kind of wonder why David doesn't just split. Get, get out of there for good. And, and I think David probably thinks to himself that Saul is a little crazy and he doesn't take it personally. But what we have here is the unraveling of Saul. This is important for us. The unraveling of Saul through jealousies, anxieties, and fear about David ascending to the throne and having all the success. I once had a great a professor at Dallas Seminary. His name was uh, Robert Chisholm. 
And he has some good words of insight on this passage that connects it to us. I want you to read this. Let me read it to you. He says, When the Lord's chosen leaders succumb to self-focused ambition, they can fall prey to jealousy and fear and thus oppose the Lord's purposes. Though we would never say, kill Jesus, kill him, right? We can have our own self-focused ambition that can cause a variety of fear and then jealousies. And it's often seen in the leadership of churches. Many of you have been in many churches throughout the world. Have you ever, ever seen a leader who seems to be focused on his own selfish ambition? Got to guard my own heart, right? And that is expressed through fear and anxiety and interactions with others within the church. We're coming up on a time here at Evanston Bible Fellowship where we're about to choose new leaders. We have, this, we have a whole process we go through. And we want to make sure as we take them through a certain process that, that we are not choosing those who are focused on their own selfish ambition that will express itself in jealousies and anxieties and fears in order to bring the church down. I'm going to kind of give you just a heads up of what's going on. We have two men going through this process uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, one is named Ben Mangridge and Tom Hartman. They both have been here for, for many years, and they are being considered for, to be an elder. And just to kind of give you the heads up where we're going, we're going to have this elder forum coming up here, uh, and then we're going to have a member meeting. And through the elder forum means anyone in our church can show up and can ask these men questions, personal questions, spiritual questions, doctrinal questions. You can ask them about selfish ambitions. You can ask them maybe about fears or jealousies. They may be stirred up with that. We want to vet them completely because we want to bring people on board that are not perfect in no way, shape, or form, but we want to continue to be guarding our hearts and guarding our church by choosing leaders who will be crowning Jesus rather than their own ambition and killing him and destroying his church. Keep going with the text. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So God's with David, not with Saul. God blesses David, withdraws from Saul. God was with David and Saul is afraid of David. God exalts David and here is Saul unraveling and falls apart. Finish up our text, verse 13. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. David is having success in battles. Saul is standing in fearful awe of David. He continues to oppose the work of God through his jealousies which produce fear and anxiety when he is around David. Rather than rejoicing, he's unraveling. Now, I want to take it down to a personal level because I talked about a moment here about how leadership within churches can, can really hurt the church, can break the church when leaders pursue their own selfish ambition. But I want to bring it down to every single one of you because most of you are young and you're not going to be in this church very long. We realize that most of you are going to move and go to another church. And as you move and go to another church, I see two types of people within here. 
Some of you are going to be very great leaders. You're going to be crowning Jesus. You're going to be encouraging the church. Even if you're not in leadership, you're going to be building up the body of Christ. But in here, there are some young people that have the potential to split churches. Churches split all the time. And what often happens as as young people get older, they seem to think that they know more about how things should be done. Yes, you can be wiser as you get older, but also you can start to pursue more and more of your selfish ambition. And as churches split all over the place, sometimes it's because people are pursuing their own selfish ambition. And guess what? I'm not a prophet. I can't read people perfectly, but I can often spot it. I can spot it because if someone is pushing their self-focused ambition in the church, it's going to be expressed through fear and anxiety. Their jealousies are often expressed in fearful tones of what they're saying, but also through the anxieties and the way they're expressing it. And Saul is obviously going after God's anointed, and we need to guard ourselves about going after God's church and destroying it through selfish ambition, fear, and anxieties. Because Jesus is Lord of this church. And we want to fall more in line of the disposition of Jonathan where we say, crown him, crown him. The way you start the Christian life is through the lordship of Jesus. There is none of this business where you're going to trust Jesus to come into your heart, to be your savior, forgive your sins, and you're not going to submit to his lordship. If that is you here this morning, I'm going to say boldly, you're not saved. You may claim that Jesus lives in your heart, but if he is not Lord of your life, then you're just playing games with words. He's either Lord or he's not. Now, there is some room and some growth that happens throughout our Christian life where we find ourselves submitting to his lordship in all areas. But the way we start our Christian life, submitting to his lordship, is the way that we continue through the Christian life, submitting to his lordship. It was 19, I was 19, It was outside of Branson, Missouri, at a camp called Canacook. I was 19. I was the counselor there. I was a counselor because I lied that I was already a Christian, and I was not. While I was there at 19, one night, I heard the gospel message, specifically that Jesus, of course, died for my sins, was buried and rose again, And that Jesus wanted to be Lord over my life. And I was to submit to him through faith as Lord. And I remember leaving that meeting. I'm going to do a little reenactment for you. I remember going to the steps of a cabin at Canacook, K2, in case you're wondering if that makes any sense. And I go to this cabin, and I sit down after hearing this message, and I am undone. I am crying. I can't pull it together. Because for 19 years, I have been Lord over my life, steeped in sexual morality, stealing, cussing, everything. And I have just been told that there is a Lord who wants to forgive me and reign over me. And I remember just crying of being undone that from that day on, I was no longer going to rule and reign over my life. 
and I was broken. I was totally smashed and broken. I put my faith in Jesus. I submitted to his lordship, not perfectly. Obviously, throughout these days, we're always growing. But I'm wondering, is there one or two or three people in here that regardless of your past, your history, your claims to Christianity, that today you need to submit to the lordship of Jesus? No matter what. You need to put your faith in Jesus and submit to his lordship. Is there anyone in here where there needs to be this undoing of you, this dethroning of you, enthroning of Christ? That is a reality that can begin in your life today through repentance and faith in the lordship of Jesus. And as you align your life with him, you align your life with victory that lasts on into eternity. But as we begin the Christian life, submission to the Lordship, we continue the Christian life in submission to Lordship. So for those of you who are claiming to be a Christian, like I claim, and you are following Jesus, there comes times in our lives where we have to reevaluate. So let's reevaluate right now, and let me leave you with two questions that you better ask yourself. Question number one. What is one area of your life that has been off limits to the Lordship of Jesus? Your sex life? Your dating life? Where you just, yeah, you can just date whoever you want. doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. What about your money? Your kids? For those of you struggling with infertility, is that off limits to the Lordship of Jesus? What about your future plans? Does Jesus have Lordship over your future plans? Are you just figuring that all out on your own? Let's give a more specific. Last question. What is one act of submission that you need to follow through and obey? What do you need to do? What's the one thing, action point? You're like, you know what? If he's going to be Lord, then you need to do something. Some of you need to reconcile, ask for forgiveness from someone. Some of you need to be sharing the gospel with someone. You know the Lord wants you to tell them about Jesus. And some of you, this may sound a little crazy, but some of you have been cranking for seven days a week at your job or at school, never taking a break, never giving any semblance of Sabbath, maybe today you need to take a nap. Amen? Submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Like, he's got to have rain. You're going to trust him from all areas of your life. Do not leave here and carry on for the next five years and be in the same spot you are today. Can you imagine if you're a parent and you have kids and you decide for the next five years you're not going to invest in them for Jesus? Some of you have already done that for the last five. You want to do it for another five? Let me know how that goes after five. That same idea should carry to every area of our lives. Nothing is off limits to the Lordship of Jesus. In every single area, we want to say, Jesus, crown you. Crown you. And may we have our heart disposition that for sure actually means it. Crown him.
Let's pray. Father, we know that you are calling us to give all to the one who gave all to us. He has forgiven our sins. Praise you, Jesus. In you, we have victory, eternal life, reconciliation with the Father. We are declared righteous. We are forgiven. We have aligned ourselves with the side of victory and will live forever. Why in the daily stuff would we keep that off limits from you? Forgive me. Forgive the woman in here who's doing that. Forgive the man in here who's doing that. Forgive us, Lord. And grow us to not just begin submitting to your lordship, but continue submitting to your lordship because you have our best interest in mind. You want to grow us. Help us have the hard conversation. Help us turn our plans over to you. Help us give you everything. And I just ask that the men and women in here filled with your spirit would fall through and act and submit to your lordship. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.